So um, I was just praising God this week for me, for me, for my ability to speak and understand Korean. And I was praising God for my Koreanness, right? Um, because I get to enjoy YouTube clips from Korea. And the YouTube clip that I was, that I was constantly going to, the YouTube channel that I was constantly going to in the last couple of weeks is a YouTube channel of, of a church in Korea. It's called, the church is called Basic Church, right? Very basic. And, and what the pastor says really resonated in me for the last couple of weeks. Basic Church, they don't, they don't have a physical building. I think before, even before COVID, they only met once a month live. And three weeks out of the four, of the four weeks, they, even before COVID, they met virtually. I don't agree with that, but the reason why they did it was because the pastor is saying, I don't want a church that is confined by buildings. I don't want a church that is confined by budgets and programs. And he said, it is because the church is more than a building or finances. Church at its core is a community of life. Because we worship a God who gives life. Christianity is not an organized religious 501c3 institution. It is more, much more than that. It is a place of people where the living God dwells. And where the living God dwells, life happens. We worship a God who gives life. We don't worship a God of dead religious practices and culture. When we worship God, we live. God did not send Jesus Christ to make another religious organization. He sent Jesus Christ so that we may live through him, right? Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, he says. Being a follower of Jesus means you have life. You experience life in your everyday, everyday episodes. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a small group. Which small group did I go to a couple of weeks ago? I think it was Alan's small group, Alan and Daniel's small group. And we had a really good small group, right, as we always do, right? After that small group, it was, yeah, last week, right, because I didn't preach last week. After that small group, I went to watch Dune on HBO Max. And I really loved it. But the reason why I love Dune, I think it was because it was, motive, it was fueled by the small group. It's not because we discussed Dune in the small group, but during the small group, as we were discussing the Word of God, right, I had a God-centered mind. And I, had, I watched Dune with a God-centered mind. And what I really loved about that movie is how cru- that it's, it's a creation of another world. That director of that movie created a world out of his mind, based on Frank Herbert's book, but he created a world. 
having a God-centered mind, looking at the newly created world, makes me realize the guy was able to create that new world because he's made in the image of God who created this world. You know what I'm talking about, Sean? I was praising God for that guy who made the movie because the guy was able to make that movie because he's made in the image of God. And because he's made in the image of God, he has this vision and the creative function to create that new world. So I was praising God for Dune. Dune came alive in my mind because it reminded me of God. I don't know whether I would like it if I didn't go to that small group. But that's what living is. Every little thing. When you look through the perspective of God, it is meaningful, it is glorious, it is awesome. Right? Look, before Joe and Heather, coffee was just a fuel, a rocket fuel that I needed. But through good old Joe, I can praise God for coffee. The coffee bean that I didn't have was totally ignorant of. It's a testament of God's created, flavorful nature. I'm praising God for coffee. Because I know it is the handiwork of God. Yesterday, I was driving to the retreat center, going 80 miles an hour on 270. And I was praising God when I was driving, right? And as I was praising God, on, on Route 270. I realized this. I realized, because I, was, I worked until 3 a.m. the night before because one of my legal, legal writers messed up and I had to fix their messes. And I was like, working really hard at 3 a.m. And I was thinking about that work as I was praising God. And when I was doing that, I realized, this is, what I, this is the realization I had. I realized, God is practicing law through me at the firm. Before, I thought it was me practicing law, and God is helping me practice law. That's what I thought, right? I'm doing the work of the lawyer. God is helping me be a lawyer. I thought that was it. But God is telling me, no, that's, not, that's wrong. God is telling me, I'm the one who's practicing law at the firm. I'm practicing law at the firm through you. But it is me who's practicing law, not you. you, Does it make sense? Before, I thought I was a lawyer. I just needed God's help to do the lawyer. But God said, telling me that's not true. It's he who's doing the work. I'm just his conduit. I'm just his vessel. That's all I am. That's the same way as the church, too. Yes, the Lord shepherds embrace through me. And when I realized that, I was praising God for my 3 a.m. work. I was praising God for my work as a lawyer. I was praising God as a work as your pastor. I was praising him. The work of the ministry and lawyer, it became far more meaningful. It became alive in my eyes. Whether it is Dune, whether it is coffee, whether it is me being a lawyer or a pastor, when you look at it through the lens of God, You praise him. Oh, you praise him. Everything becomes meaningful. Everything. 
I think that's what it means when you worship God and when you say Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. When you filter things through his lenses, oh, praise the Lord for all things. You become alive. Conversely, if you're not aware of God's presence, if you don't filter things through the lens of God, if you're only filtering things through your own lenses, things become what? Difficult? You complain? It's, it's, it's people become annoying. It's, it's annoying. It's a burden. It's a hassle. Right? Even great things, even wonderful things, after a while you get used to it. It becomes blah. Question, my friends. Is your everyday life filled with life because you're looking at things through God's perspective? Or is your life, is your job blah? David Foster Wallace wrote a book called The Pale King, and the main character of that book is an IRS government, IRS agent. In the field of law, you can't get more boring than tax law. Tax lawyers make a lot of money because no one wants to do tax law because it's so boring. Right? No, there are no tax lawyers here, right? But that book, The Pale King, is about an IRS agent who begins to look at his mundane job through a new lens. And his mundane job, when he gets new lenses to it becomes that the work that he does, the numbers that he crunches, the organization that is involved in his job, it became something glorious. Without that new lens, the IRS job is blah, boring, burdensome, a toilsome labor that you must do to get by. With new lens, it is glorious. Is your life full of life? Or is it blah? Do you know what it means to be alive? Do you know? Christianity, we, we follow the giver of life. You understand? Filtering through God's lens that results in life, that, that is especially important in your relationship with other people. The Bible is clear. The evidence of your salvation, the evidence of your knowledge of God will clearly be demonstrated in how you treat people in your life. And in order for us to, in order for our relationships to, to have life, you need to look at other people through the lens of God. You must. In order for you to properly love people, for me to properly love people, you need to filter other people, especially those who are closest to you. Wives, you need to filter your husband through the lens of God. Husbands, you need to filter your wife through the lens of God. That's how your relationship becomes fruitful. If you are not filtering each other through the lens of God, the other person will hurt you, will disappoint you. Look, 
Back to basic church. One of the, one of the, the basic church had a Q&A session of the pastor. We should do more Q&A sessions here. But anyway, and one of the questions, one of the Q&A question was, there is someone in my life who have betrayed me, who have disappointed me, who have hurt me. And I can't get over this. I can't get over the fact that that person betrayed me and hurt me. Help me. How do I get over this? And the, and the wise pastor's answer was this. He said, step number one in getting over people who hurt you, step number one is to admit human beings are supposed to betray you and hurt you. That was a shocker. He says, in order for you to properly love human beings, number one step, you need to accept that every human being is supposed, they will betray you and hurt you and disappoint you. Don't be so shocked when people do. Because even though they may try not to, invariably, because of their fallen state, they will hurt you and disappoint you. Real talk here, folks. Human beings, yes, we're amazingly designed by the, by the hand of God. We are, we are image bearers of the living God, and we are fantastically awesome. But because of the fall, because of our suppression of God, we will inevitably hurt, betray, disappoint other people. We will. We will. Look, I'm my mom's favorite son. I am, right? You can tell my brother, and they know, my brothers know the truth. I am my mom's favorite son. But I disappointed her last week. Right? My mom, my mom was saying, why don't you call this person in America? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And I said, Mom, I work 100 hours a week. What am I supposed to do? And she was very hurt by that. I'm her baby. I'm her spiritual counselor. I give her advice. He listened to my advice. But that comment that I made, it hurt her bad. I hurt my mom. I didn't want to hurt my mom, but I did. If you live with me long enough, I will hurt you. I will disappoint you. I will never meet your definition of what a Christian or a pastor is supposed to be. I will not. Let's be real here. Let's not be shocked when people disappoint us. Because that's the reality of sin. And yet our call is to love people regardless. Even if they hurt you, especially if they hurt you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, what good is it if you love someone who's good to you? Love your enemies. That's where the reward is, right? You're supposed, people are supposed to hurt you and you're supposed to love them. That's the Christian message. That's the Christian call. How are you supposed to do that? You filter people, especially you filter people through the lens of God. Do you understand? That's what the Korean, that's what the early Christians, 
when in James's time, that's, that, they weren't doing that. One of the reasons why James is writing the letter is because early Christians, early Jewish Christians in the first century, the, the, the recipients of this letter, despite their sacrificial professional faith in Jesus Christ, they were quarreling and infighting. Right? Despite the, all the things that they gave up, gave up to follow the Lord, when they were gathering, they were fighting, and there were, there were hostility between them, and they were fighting. James is saying, you guys are, James is diagnosing the problem. You guys are fighting and quarreling and hostile to one another because you are not submitting to God. You are following your passions. And your passion is causing disruption, disunity, disjointedness in the church. They are looking at each other through the lens of their passions and not the truth. James says, that's what you're fighting. And Paul agrees. Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists the fruits of the flesh. The flesh, Paul talks about, is a, is a life that is, is a person who's void of the knowledge of God. A person who, is, who doesn't know God, who suppresses the knowledge of God, their fruit is, the result of their lives is this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. A person who doesn't know God, their fruit is hatred, discord, jealousy, fists of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and fractions. What Paul is saying is this. When you suppress the knowledge of God, when you look at the life only through your passions, hatred, division, dissension, factions are inevitable. Our country is very divided. The world is divided. Korea is divided. The U.S. is divided. The whole world is divided into factions, into infighting. It is. All of it because people suppress the knowledge of God. We are living in a divided world because people are suppressing the true knowledge of God. They are not filtering, things, filtering each other through the lens of God. They are filtering things through their passions. That is why there's division. That's why there's division in the world. That's why there's division in the church. When you suppress the knowledge of God, there will be division and factions and arguments in your homes, in your workplaces, amongst husband and wives. That is why James is pleading or yelling at, the, at, the, at, at his Christians, you must submit to God. You cannot follow your passions. You must submit yourself to God. You must filter all things through the lens of God in order for the Christian community to work. Do you understand? I'll give you an example. Another YouTube clip from another church in Korea. It was, it, this is, YouTube clip is from, it, it, it's from a wife of a pastor of a small church. If you're a wife of a small, if you're wife of a pastor of a small church in Korea, you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to do a very, you got to, you got to do a lot of things. You got to cook for people. You got to clean the church, right? You got to, you got to do a lot of stuff. On top of that, you have this expectation. People are looking at you. If you're a pastor's wife, people look at you with a certain expectation. Imagine coming to church on Sunday where you have to do a lot of the physical labor. Not only that, people look at you and judge you. Do you want to be in that environment? She had to be. 
because her, her, because her husband is the lead pastor of that church. And she wanted to leave real bad. She was begging her husband, please, can we leave the church? But then she said, she actually not just prayed about the church, secondary. She felt the Lord leading her for intimacy. So she spent time with the Lord, not asking him to take her away from the church, but simply spending time with the Lord, praising him, knowing him. And she says, as she was embedded with the presence of God, God changed her desire to stay. She stayed because as she was with God, she started to filter her church and her mission in a different light. That's an example how you and I are called to live, especially in our relationship with other people. You filter things, not through your passions, but through God. Do you understand? That is why in verse 8, James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James is commanding the early church, and he's commanding, God's commanding through him to us this morning. Your commandment is to draw near to him. And when you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Listen, we worship a God who is alive. And a God who is alive is a God who constantly speaks and who's constantly present and who's constantly leading, who is constantly making himself known. He is. He is not a God who is silent. He is not. My confession of faith is he is not silent at all. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Drawing near to God means we are listening to his invitation to come to him and we go to him. When we, go to, when, when we heed his invitation and we go to him, the promise is he will come near to you. He will make himself known to you. If you desire intimacy with God, he will become intimate with you. That's a promise. The number one problem of Christians is I think we all are assuming that God will not speak to us. We are assuming that God is always silent. I think Tim Keller quotes a movie. Or is it Tim Keller or someone else? There was a movie in the 50s, I guess. And that movie was about a pope who was like really praying. Praying like consistently. And one day God showed up. And the priest and the Pope was shocked that God did. What is he saying? The Pope like lifted up prayers 
years. But he never thought God was listening. And I think that's our assumption too. We say we believe in the Holy Spirit. We say we believe in the living God. But yet we think he's not going to speak to us. We think we're, he, he's silent. We're used to him being silent. And verse 8 is saying that's not true. When you draw near to him, he will come to you. And you'll be able to listen to him and see him and feel him and, and, and be moved by him. Guys, I won't be up here if that's not true. Right? You need that intimacy with God to filter all things through his lenses so that you will experience life. He will draw near to you. I don't care how busy you are. Look, I work 100 hours a week. If a dude who's working 100 hours a week can feel the presence of God constantly in his life, a dude who's working 40 hours a week certainly can, can it? Right? Your busyness cannot be an excuse to not be present in the presence of God. It cannot. Right? The call is to draw near to him. Look, look, guys, real talk here once again. When was the last time you were aware of his presence in your life? As I said in the retreat yesterday, if it's been years since you felt his presence in your life, if you were silent in your life for years, or you, if he was never present in your life. I think that silence reveals something about the nature of your faith, right? Again, Jesus Christ did not come to make another 501c3 religious organization. He came to give us life. And we experience life as we draw near to him, as we are intimate with him. Draw near to God. Not as an afterthought, not after watching Squid Games on Netflix, not after doing the dishes, not after doing everything that you want to do and then draw near to Him. No, make the drawing near to Him the primary importance of your your life. How do you draw near to Him? You draw near to Him through His Word. He designed us as people with brains. He designed with people with languages. He, des- he made us. Human beings are the only creatures that is capable of such great language. And he gave us that ability so that we could know him through his word. There is no other way for us to draw near to him apart from his word. That's what the retreat, last night's retreat sermon was all about, Right? Last night we took sermon was about Psalm 103. Psalm 103, the psalmist was in a spiritual depression. He was spiritually dry. But what, what led the psalmist out of his spiritual dryness is a, is a meditation about the works of God. Psalmist says, I was dry, but then I stopped and I considered your marvelous work. When I consider your marvelous work, I become alive. 
considering his marvelous work for us by God's grace is his word. Don't be passe about the word of God. Don't say, I, I, know, I know a guy who says, yeah, I, I said, do you read the, did, did you read the Bible? He says, yeah, I read the Bible. And I, go, and I said, when did you read the Bible? He said, I read it like on my bed as I was going, going to sleep. Right before I went to sleep, I opened up Philippians, read a passage, and I closed, and I, and I slept. Is that drawing near to God? He doesn't go to our church, by the way, so I can, I can tell. Is that how you draw near to God? Looking at the verse of the day, oh, interesting verse, and then going your merry way, is that drawing near to God? Every morning, most mornings, I don't want to like most mornings, I either, I'm out on my porch reading the word of God, or I'm running with, with reading the word of God, and when I do, every morning, the passages that I read, there's something that God just jumps out. And I think there's something that God wants me to think about as I'm reading or listening. And then you sit down and you kind of meditate upon what that really means. And then you, and I go to work. And then I come back and I'm constantly thinking about what that word means and I meditate upon it. And I pray to God in the evening based upon that word. I pray for you based upon what God is talking to me. I think that's how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to read it, not just in the morning and forget about it, but constantly meditate upon it throughout the day. When I'm working, I'm listening to Christian radio, Christian podcast, and I'm just constantly exposing myself to the Word of God. When you do, He speaks. That's how you draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will. Do not take silence of God as just a natural state of things. It's not. God did not die for us to be silent in our lives. Aren't you motivated to do quiet time now? Don't you want to go and do quiet times now? Man, this took longer than I thought it would. Let's go to the next verse. After drawing near to God, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is saying, not only do you draw near to God, but a person who draws near to God lives, lives a life of repentance and confession of sin. The Christians that he's, that he's writing to, what were they doing? They were not submitting to God. They were following their passions, which was leading them to, to fight amongst themselves, right? And, 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 then, and they were sinning. To them, he's saying, draw near to God, but also repent. Cleanse your hands means, cleanse, cleanse, cleansing, cleansing hands is a, is a symbolic act that the priests did in the Old Testament. Before they offered up sacrifices to the Lord, they need to cleanse themselves, wash their hands as a symbolic gesture of their repentance. 
having a relationship with God means actually thinking about your sins and repenting them and confessing them before the Lord. He says, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purity, purity, purity means single-minded loyalty. You don't have divided loyalties. Being single-mindedly devoted, being, single, being pure means being singly loyal to something. You don't have divided loyalties. Best example is, I guess, football teams. Right? I don't know what your all football teams are for, like what, what you're for, but most dudes who like their football teams are really loyal to their football team. What do we call those dudes who switch te- favorite teams like a couple of years? What, what, what do we call them, Rob? What do we call the guy who promises... Oh, I'm sorry? Fail with a friend. Fail, fail, fail with a friend. Fan. One season, are you really for the Washington football team? Can you really? And another season, you're really for the Cowboys, right? That's divided loyalty. And we find that disgusting, right? We, fought, we find fair-weather fans disgusting. I don't care because I don't care about football. But I guess true blue football fans would. When James says purify your hearts, he's meaning, look, Christians, you, your loyalties are divided. You say that you belong to God and you follow the world. Christians, confess your double-mindedness. Confess your sins. Confess to the Lord your double-minded, your tendency to be double-minded. Guys, as passionately as I preach right now, tomorrow morning when I get up, my loyalties will be tempted to be divided. Right? I am tempted every morning to think of myself as a D.C. lawyer rather than a son of God. That's true. We are constantly tempted to be divided, having divided loyalties. James is saying, be aware of that and confess that before the Lord. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Be wretched means, right here, be, be wretched me, here means, means is this. Actually, sit down and, and study your sin. Every day, you and I sin. Even though we're forgiven, we, we, because we're still living in a fallen reality, we sin. Being wretched means, just, just don't be lackadaisical about your sin. Actually, when you sin, when you say the thing that hurt your spouse, when you, when you complain, when you watch the things that you shouldn't watch, rather than just like, oh, I feel bad, and moving on, he says, no, actually take it out and sit down and look at it. Look at your sin. Look what it's doing to the people in your life. Look what it's doing to your soul. Look how wrong it is. Look how bad it is. Look how disgusting it is. Look how damaging it is. Look at it, he says. Do you look at your sins? Being near to God, walking with God, looking at your sins and confessing is a very fundamental, important component of it. Think we're too comfortable with our sins. We're really forgiving, forgiving, we're really generous with our sins. James is saying, don't do that. Look at it. And when you look at it, when you really look at it, 
you will feel ashamed. You will mourn and you will weep because you will see how bad it is, how destructive it is. For example, when you're road raging, do people still road rage these days? Because even though, really, they do? Even though it's like traffic? Man, when you're road raging, it's sin, right? Because you're cursing and condemning another human being. Take the road rage. Study it. What is the word, what is the condemning word that comes out of your mouth really say about you? Weep over it. Repent. But also realize it is for such sins that Christ died for you. As you realize the person that you are, you also begin to realize why Jesus needed to die for you. And when you begin to realize why Jesus needed to die for you, because of this kind of sin, his love will become real. A lot of the problem with Christians, they have a very nebulous, flaky, unclear understanding of God's love. I think people's understanding of God's love is part Santa Claus, part sitcom dad, right? Part, I don't know, boyfriend, right? It's, like, it's a mixture of full house, Christmas movies, and then romantic comedies. They have this huge, strange idea of the love of God. All of it is nebulous and foolishness. The true understanding of the love of God only comes when you examine your sins and realize it is for such sins that he died for you. He needed to die for you for such sins. When you contemplate your sin like that, his love will become more alive. And when his love becomes more alive, you know what happens to you? You become a more loving person. You become a more patient person. When you live like that, God will give you the power to overcome sin. When you actually examine it, your sins, and know it is for that Christ died, and when you're really moved by that, the way you look at that sin will change. People can't get over their sins, number one, because, number one, they don't observe it. Number two, they look at it and they feel bad about it, but they don't really consider Jesus on it. They go, oh, what are you going to do? I feel bad. And they move on. That's not going to change your sins either. Feeling guilty about your sins is not going to change, change your sins either. Looking what that sin means and what Christ has done for you, that will give you the power to overcome sin. And when you do, you will become a more loving person. Look, Practical advice. Why is there a problem in your marriage? Because you guys aren't confessing, because you guys aren't aware of your sins. You guys are constantly blaming each other for whatever misery the other person causes you. But you're never confessing. You're never sitting down and looking at yourself what you are doing. It's always someone else's fault. Because you're not examining your own sins, There's unforgiveness, bitterness in your relationship. When James is saying, confess your sins, 
He's not saying that to condemn you, but to free you so that you will overcome your sins. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. People in this world, James is saying, are really into laughter and enjoyment. They want to be happy in this world. But the Christian, the way you become happy in this world, is by having a sober understanding of your sin. Prayer of confession, knowing the love of God through the confession of your sins, that's how you're truly joyful in the world. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He is continuing his theme about repentance. The word humble here means someone who knows that they need forgiveness. The image is someone who's who's been found guilty and who goes before the king, who 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 can, you know, lay a sentence on that person. So the person is found guilty of a crime and he's brought before the king and the king can sentence him to death. Being humble means being aware of your guilt. If you're aware of your guilt before the king, the king will come down and exalt you. Means, let's say you're like, you're, you're like, you're like begging the king to forgive you. Exalt, exaltation means him coming down and him lifting your face and saying that you're forgiven. When you humble yourself before the Lord, when you know that you are guilty before the Lord, he will come and lift you up and he will tell you that you're forgiven. Most people are not exalted by God, are not forgiven by God because they're not humble before the Lord. They do not know there's anything to forgive. Even many Christians do not think there's anything for them to, for God to forgive them about. They may understand that they're sinners in a conceptual way, but in real ways they do not know. Because in real ways that they do not know, they never experience God's comfort, God's exaltation, because they never know that they need something to be forgiven for. Why is there deadness in Christianity? Because people don't know they need to be forgiven by the king. Do you understand? They're like the world. Look, one of the reasons I got called into HR back in the day was because I was arguing with my Muslim paralegal who, who says human beings are naturally good, according to the Quran. And I said, the Quran is wrong. Human beings are naturally good. Look at the evidence. She almost called me into HR because of that. I know, right? We're not. We're, most people are like her. We think we're good. And there's nothing to be forgiven for. That's the definition of pride in the Bible. And if you're pride before, the Bible, before God, he will not lift you up or exalt, be exalted. Be aware of your sins. Examine your sins. Be humble before the Lord. Ask for his forgiveness. And he will lift you up. He will forgive you. He will shine his grace upon your life. That's what James means in verse 10. The Christians are going the opposite way when James is writing this letter. James saying, turn back. Don't go the way of your passions. Don't follow the desires of your heart. Don't be like the world. Come back to God. Examine your sins. Be humble before Him, and He will forgive you and lift you up. 
How do you know the love of God in your life? Be humble before him. Confess your sins. He will lift you up. A person who's humble before the Lord, who knows they've been forgiven by God, you know how they live? They live in service to God. They live in service to God. What does it mean to live in service of God? It means you live humbly in the service of God. What does it mean to live humbly in the service of God? You live like Jesus Christ. What is the humility of Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 2. Christ was the Son of God, was in the right hand of God, but he didn't, he, but he gave up his position. He came into the world as a servant. And he, and he served in the world and he died alone in the world so that you and I can be saved. The word humility in the Bible is not, oh, I'm a loser, I'm no one special, I'm ugly, I don't have any talent. That's not being, having, a, having like a low view of your talents, your, your worth, that's not what humility is. Humility in the Bible is imitating the humility of Christ who made himself lower so that he will be a servant, servant to all. Being a humble servant of Christ means you are a humble servant and you devote your life to the service of God and his people. Being humble means serving those whom serving those who are unworthy, serving those who reject you, serving those who may not be good to you. You serve. When you serve people like that, God will exalt you. Look, the other day, I respect my partner a lot. I think my partner is the smartest lawyer I've ever met. I really do. Right? It's a privilege to work with a guy like that. The other day, he said, Jay, you're an awesome lawyer. And I go, oh. He exalted me. I'm a big deal, guys. Right? I'm a big deal. My, 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 my partner exalted me. That exaltation is nothing compared to the exaltation that God will give me when I live my life in service to him and his people, especially the people who reject me. And it was not good to me. Do you want God to exalt you? To say, wow, look at my child. Live in service to others like he has served you. In chapter 5, James condemns the rich Christians for living a life of comfort and luxury. God doesn't hold them in high regard. You can be a Christian, you can live for yourself, you can live for luxury. God does not hold them in high regard. He regards the servants, the sacrificial servants. Yesterday during the retreat, during our small group time, we were discussing about community, and the thing that we were discussing about was I feel hesitant to reach out to people because I feel that they're going to reject me. And I'm, I told them, and I'm telling you, God will exalt you when you reach out to those people. God will exalt you when you 
when you purposely are inconvenienced and discomforted and, you, and, 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 and it needs courage to reach out to those people, God will exalt you for doing it. God will not exalt you. Not us. God, God will not exalt us for sitting, for us being comfortable in our silos and not doing anything. It felt really good to be exalted by my partner. It really did. But won't it feel great being exalted by the King of Kings? Live a life of humility. Give yourself. Last example. Another Korean clip that I follow is like pastors who work in Korea, right? There are many pastors in Korea, many churches in Korea, many churches cannot pastor pastor full-time salary. So there are many pastors out there who are working like hard labor jobs. He's not PJ sitting in his office signing papers. One pastor is out there like, like giving flyers away, being constantly being rejected. One pastor drives, like, you know, Korean noodles. He's a delivery delivery person. During his delivery, he says, he gives gives a pamphlet to his church, and and the person rejects him. They're out in the field, giving of themselves to the Lord. And they're rejected, and they're viewed very low. God will exalt such people in the end. He will not exalt the comfortable. He will not exalt the people who receive praise in the world. But servants. James is saying, live like that. And for the remainder of your days, live like that. And he will exalt you. Let us pray.